This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. The land on which I am lucky enough to raise my son always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This episode of Witching Hour is brought to you by Elan House of Wellness, the ultimate destination for postpartum care, supporting mothers with food, education, self-care tools and gifts. Hello and welcome to Witching Hour, the podcast that looks at what's exciting, delighting, intriguing and frustrating us when it comes to making work, work. I'm Lucinda. And I'm Loz. And we're on Zoom today, Loz, but you're steering the ship, so I am providing the good news. Take it away, my friend. You found this, so I feel a bit fraudulent taking it from you because it's bloody beautiful. This is an ABC piece. A four-year-old girl, the youngest of seven, spends her days devouring book after book in a regional Victorian town. When she opens up her latest book, a golden ticket falls out, placed there by a benevolent yet kooky philanthropist. No, not Willy Wonka, but country music icon Dolly Parton. I love Dolly. This is so good. It's amazing the way she's popping up in this episode too. It sounds like a dream, but in this case, it's a dream come true. While most people know Dolly Parton for her music, to many children, Parton is the person who sends them a book every month. Inspired by her own upbringing in a large family with an illiterate father and little money, the Dolly Parton's Imagination Library began in 1995 as a way to help children prepare for school by delivering free books on a regular basis to people's homes. Did you know that this existed? I didn't know. No, I think that's why I found it so And I've listened to the Dolly Parton podcast too. I don't know how I've missed that. How good is that? So good. The program expanded to Australia in 2013 and this year is celebrating sending out 200 million books worldwide. So one of the members of Parton's library is a four-year-old Willow Board from Portland in southwest Victoria who loves receiving a new book every month. When she opened up her latest book, A Golden Ticket Fell Out, placed there by Parton and her team. It was one of just seven in the world and will give Willow and her family a video call with Parton, a signed poster and personal letter and four free tickets to Dollywood. The Dollywood Foundation will also donate $2,000 to United Way Glenelg, which coordinates Dolly Parton's imaginary library in the Portland region. That is, Loz, you've come here with some good stories. This is my favourite. I know, it's so cute and it's so nice. I don't know what the um, parameters are around that book club, but for those listening, I would encourage you to actually have a look and see if you're eligible. So good. So as you know, we had a bit of a weird weekend where Ray was in hospital with respiratory distress. He gets it pretty often. It was fine. Not great, but not fine. But we're in hospital for pretty much two days. So I'm less prepared on this show today than you are. You know, you're steering the ship. But I do want to ask you something before we get into it. So tonight, Ray was meant to stay at my in-laws house at your your auntie and uncle at their yeah. house but they have COVID and Ray has been sick so postpone we'll do it another time Hayden suggested we go see a movie or something and I want to know I think it's particularly because I'm pregnant do you come into those times when you are going to have child free time and you're going to be with your husband where you're like all I fucking want to do is relax but I also know we should do something yeah, but a movie is exactly that. It's like yeah, low-key. As in you're literally sitting on the couch eating a chocolate. Oh, He's not saying really let's true. grab wow. a dinner or you even I'm have to very talk. lazy. You don't even have to talk during a movie. That's the best part about it. That's You've been true. with your but husband you, for a long do you time. Get, do you get like that? Like say it's a Friday night and you know you're having fr- kid-free time and you're like, we should go out for dinner, but I can't be bothered. Do you get that vibe? Or do you just no. always push yourself to go out for dinner? Oh, look, do you know what? There's certain times when I actually can't be bothered, but I make the effort to do something. And in fairness to Hades, I'd probably be like, if I am just like, oh, my energy is so low, I would probably suggest a movie. So I'm like, yeah. I don't have to talk to Ryan. I yeah. can just pig out. Slug Maltesers with popcorn. Maltesers and chocolate. And mo- Maltesers and popcorn in the same mouthful. Have you ever done that? Oh, someone re- actually, someone recommended this to me. I'm sure he will be listening. And it was repulsive. I'm sorry. I am not on board for that trend. Was, no. what I know. Fuck? No, absolutely not. I actually wanted to ask you in particular because I knew you'd give me, not that it's even happening tonight anyway, but I knew you'd give me the kick up the butt to be like, Dals, go do something. 
Yeah, go. Do it. Because once yeah. you have another kid, it's impossible. As in, yeah. Yeah, sorry, no, it's not impossible. It's just more planned. And then, yeah. There's way more planning. It's like when I always think about we nearly got another dog and I'm like, that would have made our lives much harder. <laughs> I, you're crazy. You're crazy. Anyway, we digress. And even though I don't really know what we're talking about, I'm going to tell everyone else what we're talking about. So today, you don't have to have it all figured out. 10 Ways Motherhood Makes You Extraordinary, a deep dive on Brittany's new book, and a question from a listener about an unexpected pregnancy and maternity leave. Kick us off, Dal. You don't have to have it all figured out. I would say it is rare that I come across an article written by university. It's not really what I'm looking for usually when I'm reading these. But I found this one by the University of Sydney so spot on, particularly for where I'm at personally. And I know that, Lou, you're in a similar position in that we're both kind of looking for what the next step is. This particular article got me thinking about that transition into motherhood. And I'll I'll tell you why. So it was written for students, clearly, um, about graduates and it got me thinking about how it's relevant to all changes that happen throughout our lives, motherhood obviously being a significant one. It says, starting out in your career as a graduate can often come with pressure to have everything neatly planned and figured out. And I think everybody who's finished school, who's finished uni or done a TAFE course or whatever they may have done, or if you've done nothing even when you finish school, you get that feeling. Like mm. people expect you to know what you want to do. And that kind of comes from like year 10 when you have to do work experience. And you're like, far out, mate. I don't even know. I don't I'm need 16. to know. I'm getting drunk on the weekend. Why am I worrying about my career? Exactly. <laughs> um, however... In a world where professional success is more like a winding path than a straight road, it's essential to remember that not having it all sorted out is perfectly normal. So Samantha Berry, our Learning and Development Manager at Herbert Smith Freehills, contributed to this article. And here are the three things she says you don't have to have sorted out just yet. Number one, you don't have to have a professional job right now. It's common to have a few non-professional jobs after you graduate while you're still building your networks. Just stay engaged and remember that your first job is just a way to get started. I'd actually love if women could apply this mentally to themselves after they have a baby. So if you're like me and you've been made redundant or, or perhaps... Or you're just sort of not sure of your next move. Yeah, or you may, you may not want to go back to your job. You didn't have yeah. the best experience or love your manager or whatever it might be. I would love it if we can think about this after motherhood, you don't have to have that huge, large organization, hustle, grind, whatever it is right now. There is nothing wrong with stepping into a retail role, for example. I love that. I don't see anything wrong with that. And I reckon on so many occasions, like I've had friends that have done that. And not once have I ever thought to myself, they're taking such a step back. No, like, that's I've so never true. thought about friend, it like that. My friend is a midwife and she worked in retail in between, I think just once a week, maybe twice. But midwifery is obviously a really hard, for some people it works really well with motherhood, but for others I can imagine that shift work on top of already the shift work of motherhood is a lot. So she went into retail one or two days a week and it just kept her foot in the door. She'd probably get great discounts too. I think about this all At a the time. lovely shop too. At yeah. A lovely See, shop. I, sometimes I dream about this. Like I'd love 40% off at Country Road. Yeah. I buy so much shit from there. What do you buy from there? Just like everything. Sheets, tops, crap that I don't oh, need. Love it. Number two, you don't have to know what you want to do. Love this. I'm a big advocate for the design thinking approach to careers, says Samantha. That means using your experience to refine what you're looking for. Each job is like a stepping stone where you're testing where to go next. To do this, you're going to have to be trying to find opportunities that allow you to analyse if it's a path worth exploring further. I had a bit of a dig into this because I'm like, God, people must change jobs so many times. So studies show that the average person will change careers 10 to 15 times during their working years. That's huge. And I think this oh, is only getting bigger. This makes me feel so much better about myself because I've kept on a similar trajectory, but I've chopped and changed within that trajectory countless yeah. times and don't forget this is probably isn't thinking about the new generation clearly because they're not at an age where they can work yet so it's just going to get higher and become more acceptable 91 percent of millennials expect to change jobs every three years this was my favorite stat like i really loved it the average age a person changes careers is 39 years old how comforting is that for mums to hear too? Like so you don't have to have comforting. it all figured out before you have kids. People are doing no, it and after. And so many people, like we spoke about this last week, so yeah. many people have this 
age pressure at 30 to like have 100%. their life set, to have their career set. So the studies are showing the exact opposite, that the pinnacle of change is actually towards 40. So That's 30, so which good. is most likely after, it's not necessarily in all cases, yeah, but in but a in lot. A yeah. Do you think it's a bit of a midlife thing? Like, what do I want? I'm around about midlife. And I hope I'll last a bit longer than 80, but um, yeah. But it's around about that. But I do also think for women, I think after you have kids, you kind of reevaluate what you want in Korea. Like I've spoken to so many friends that are more interested in flexibility or a lovely team or like a nice environment or, you know, stimulating work, just different stuff than what you would have had in your early 30s. Do you find that? I do. I think for me, it's been more about just making sure I really love what I'm doing. Flexibility would definitely be a big one, but I think it's more about like, why didn't I go back to my job? I would say that the pay wasn't worth the way I was going to punish myself when okay. I could create a better lifestyle for myself. So on that, I didn't actually include this, but another thing that I found that I will say, and this will be completely like wrong, but you get the gist of it. They actually said the number one reason still today why people leave their roles or change careers is for salary. Interesting. Uh I thought that might've changed after COVID. Although I I thought it might've been more skewed towards benefits. Yeah. But I think to be real, people just want to be paid for what they're worth. Yeah. And I mean... We probably mention this every bloody episode, but things are expensive at the moment. So money matters. Yeah. Number three, the last one. You don't need to love the job you have now if it's helping you in some way. So all jobs carry good points and bad points. You might not love all the day-to-day tasks, but feel very supported by your team, for example. Well, perhaps the industry isn't where you ultimately want to be, but it's giving you the key skills you need to go where you want to go and it can be worth staying. I think you can still be working towards and interviewing at the same time. There's no reason why you have to be like stuck in a role being like, oh, this isn't right. You can still expand your horizon, search for other roles, but maximize the skills that you're learning and frame your mindset as what you can offer your next employer. Mm. I think there's so much pressure to, in general, like, I don't know if it's a, I don't necessarily think it's a female thing. But like, you know, when people say, oh, do you love your job? And you're like, parts of it, like, yeah, yeah, but not everything. And then it's like this constant search to find something yeah, that ticks all better. the boxes. Like in my and experience, I've never hits. found that. Yeah. And like, you might feel good for the first six months in that new job and think it's your dream job, but it very quickly becomes just a, any other job. What I love about this though, is the focus on that all jobs carry good points. So Focus on the the good things about that job. Even if you're not that happy there and you are interviewing and you're trying to get another job, whatever it is that sent you there and whatever skills you can improve on within that organization, make the most of it while you're there, but while still having that view to where you want to go. Yeah, spot on. I just want to come back to the fact that you don't have to have it all figured out. And I think it is even more important to tell mums this because if most people are lasting in their jobs for three years it means that the way that you're feeling is not unusual, it's normal. 10 ways motherhood makes you extraordinary, according to science. So I love anything with a bit of science or data behind it. And sometimes I think it's nice to have a really feel good piece. Like there's a lot of negativity, a lot of things that we kind of dissect, but this is just a nice, it's a really lovely article. And especially if you're having like an I'm just a mum day, because you're not just a mum. Yeah. So the start of it says, feel like you became a superhero once you became a mom. You did. Kids, man. Some days it feels like they might just kill you, but here's a secret. They're probably doing the opposite. Despite the decrease in sleep, time and money parents tend to experience after having kids, a number of studies indicate that people can reap a heap of physical and emotional benefits from both pregnancy and motherhood. You're already making me feel more confident yet again, Loz, because I always read things about how important sleep is and how bad it is for our health not to sleep. And I'm like, where does that leave parents? Well, these ones are goodies. Doctor, I don't know why I always get stuck with saying names. I am quite possibly the worst name reader. Like, I just feel sorry. Dr. Felice Gersh. Felice Gersh has said the following. Becoming a nun. Becoming a nun. 
<laughs> That'd be hilarious. Try, that probably would be in good May. for your health. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Not for your sexual health. <laughs> oh, maybe it would. Oh my god, I'm so like, sorry. Oh, <laughs> I'll go through these reasonably quick. And some of them I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. We've all heard it before. But number one, lower the risk of cancers. Women who have babies at an older age specifically reduce their risk of developing ovarian cancer, says Gersh. Wow. One study found 16% lower risk of ovarian cancer for every five-year increase in a woman's age the first time she gave birth. Possible reason for the connection is when women are pregnant, their progesterone levels increase, which triggers certain cells to self-destruct. Since older women have accumulated more damage to cells lining the ovaries, a later first pregnancy may clear more damaging cells. That's incredible. Yeah, I feel like that's the first time I've ever read something that's actually like beneficial. That's not being mean about people (laughs) uh, carrying pregnancies when they're older. Exactly right. So there you go. If you want to have kids later, it looks like... Ovarian cancer is far reduced for those people. We did say one study, so do not take this as gospel. Number two, increased longevity. A 2017 study involving 1.5 million Swedes found that people with one or more children, regardless of sex, tend to outlive their child-free counterparts. I'm actually shocked by that. I'm really shocked by that. To all of our child-free friends out there, I'm sure you're having a great time. Don't yeah. worry. I'm sure you're having a great time. We will be here for a long time. I'm joking. <laughs> we, we might be. I won't. I won't. Number three, breastfeeding benefits. Another breastfeeding benefit few know of is a reduced risk of stroke during the postmenopausal years, says Gersh. And the longer a woman breastfeeds, the lower the risk. Even breastfeeding one baby for up to six months lowers her risk by 19%. Wow. It's crazy. I mean, I will say I'm not pro or against, is that the right word? Breastfeeding, if you can, great. If you can't, Yeah, a benefit if it's there for you. Otherwise, don't worry about it. Exactly. But pretty cool start. Really cool start. Number four, increased productivity. I mean, guys, come on. This isn't like rocket science. It's actually been proven. I like to see it in science, though, as you say. Like, I like that there's an actual stat that shows me that this is true. Yeah, I'm more productive. So it has been proven that women become more productive once they give birth. A specific 2014 study of academic economists found that mothers and fathers in the field were both more productive than their childless counterparts. And the more kids for mums, the more efficient they proved to be. I mean, why do you think that is? Oh, because you only have a certain amount of time to actually get shit done. So yeah, exactly. If you had 15 quick. children, you'd be like, all right. You'd be yeah, like militant. I'm, I'm much better at the laundry these days because I know... Yeah. That there's a certain amount of time, I can do it. 15-minute cycle on repeat. (laughs) Ain't nobody doing the one-hour cottons. Um, Number five, increased grey matter. Guess what? You'd like this. Mum brain, the often cited term, when a mother forgets something, is real. But it's actually fantastic. Researchers found that having kids makes women's brains bigger in certain areas, particularly those related to motivation, reward, and emotion processing and reasoning alongside judgment. Pretty good compensation for occasionally leaving the keys in the fridge. This is one of my favourite facts about motherhood because, as you know, I don't like being told I have mummy brain. Uh-huh. But this makes it positive and I do have mummy brain. Yeah, look, it's not, it not, it's not necessarily a bad a negative. thing. Yeah, and for me personally, like the most motivated I have ever been was after I had kids. This is relevant. I didn't find it overly interesting, uh, but it might be interesting for you. So women who have been critical of their bodies in the past, pregnancy, childbirth, breastfeeding, and motherhood in general are a great opportunity to reconcile or reframe some of the thoughts and feelings around your own body. I find that incredibly interesting because eating disorders are so prevalent for teenagers and such a big part of the unfortunate female identifying experience, I reckon. So I think that's beautiful. When you're giving birth, I mean, you're kind of in a position where you just have to let go because there's there's shit coming out of every orifice and there's oh, a there's thousand a people in the on. room. So you're like, you just got to accept it. You're like, well. Yeah. How weird's giving goes, birth and then being like afterwards, shit, sorry about that. <laughs> sorry that I was mooing like a cow nude and you just have to watch the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> the midwife's like, no worries. It's literally our job. But I'm like, fucking hell. <laughs> Was blocks. Um, yeah, now this what just happened in there. <laughs> oh, God, I'm um, going mad again. Number seven, increased vulnerability. Number eight, easier or no periods. So everyone's different. 
Uh, the Cleveland Clinic reported that women with endometriosis or a history of painful periods may have easier periods first after your baby is born because pregnancy and childbirth stretch the uterus, dilate the cervix, and release hormones that relax uterine muscles. Wow. I mean, I've done it twice now. I It hasn't been the case for me, but I don't have endometriosis. And they're saying breastfeeding mums can enjoy a few extra months of no period whatsoever. Again, um, if you haven't had a child yet, completely dependent on your situation. Like I know people that have breastfed and their periods come back like three weeks after birth. My friend is about eight weeks postpartum and she just said the other day. Oh, it's the freaking worst. believe it, but I just got yeah. my period again. So yeah. unfair. Your body's making a lot of fluid. You don't need more. Exactly. Number nine, increased flexibility. There's a good chance that becoming a parent in all its messy, unpredictable glory is making you go with the flow in every facet of your life. We've both I absolutely feel this. I think one of the greatest lessons that motherhood has taught me is like just surrendering and letting go. And I think it's a huge lesson. Yeah, I find it very difficult to go oh, with same. the flow. Yeah. trying to con- I try to control everything. Yeah, but you need to find your own go with the flow. Like sometimes people say, I'll just go with the flow. And what I'm thinking is like a shitty house with shit everywhere Mm. and like craziness and chaos. To be honest, like my go with the flow doesn't look like that. Yeah. Like just letting go a little bit. Yeah. Maybe it's like letting Sienna wear a strawberry mushed t-shirt and being okay with that or not changing her clothes 15 times or not doing a load of washing every freaking hour. Yeah. Or just like being okay with them making a bit more mess than you used to be comfortable with. I always find those moments where I'm like, he's not harming himself. He's happy and he's not ruining anything. Just let him be. And I feel like those little micro lessons, you don't even realize they're happening, but a hundred percent, they like change your whole way of being. Exactly. And then the last one is more joy. There are a bunch of conflicting opinions on this one. So I think we touched on it a couple of episodes ago where they said you don't necessarily have more joy. Studies have found, in fact, kid-free people are often found to have the most joy. I think it's like a perspective thing though. I think so too. I've read a lot of things that have said, which I think we have discussed on this, that it's more, it's not so much that you're happier, but that you can find more meaning yeah and I would almost I do align with the more joy thing obviously but I think the interesting thing about motherhood obviously is that it brings a range of emotions right good or bad so I sort of understood them like that it brings more meaning to your life but I reckon the further along I get and the more that Ray is actually becoming like my little mate the more joyful it is in like a more tangible way I've always enjoyed him I give him more but they give you more. Yeah. And there's more joy of like, oh my God, you just did that. And I love you. Um, So that's a really interesting one. Yeah. I thought this was a really nice light article to share. Cause I think sometimes we do talk about not the negatives, but like the realistic parts of being a mom. It can yes. be difficult to juggle. There are a bunch of complexities when it does come to career, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's horrible. Or it's always hard. And it can be really hard finding that balance of being realistic and talking about the hard bits without it just feeling like this cesspool of like negative energy. And it goes back to what we were saying last week about how I told you how Jessie Stevens has been talking about how she was a bit nervous about becoming a mum because of her depression and whatnot. And now she's like, oh, my God, I'm loving this. And you just don't hear that narrative enough. And I don't speak about that narrative enough personally. So I love this. And these 10 reasons are a pretty good science-backed way to look at how amazing motherhood can be. And I'm really glad that there's some health benefits because honestly, that sleep thing, I really thought I was was digging myself an early grave. (laughs) Christmas can be a really stressful time and it can be hard to find a moment for yourself. We know how much of the load is placed on mothers and Elon House of Wellness wants mothers to prioritise themselves through nourishing food and self-care. With their incredibly thoughtful offering of dry mixes like the dark chocolate banana bread, traditional Chinese medicine mixes, I can't wait to try the Restore Herbal Soup in my upcoming postpartum, and gifts including affirmation cards, body oils, mists and creams, Elan House of Wellness is changing the way we think about postpartum care and looking after mothers. Loz, you've had two postpartum experiences now. Any tips? I personally cannot stress the importance of self-care enough. I know I overlooked it the first time around because I was so focused on the birth, but the thing I actually appreciated the most was when people brought around nutritious food or body products specifically for me. 
which is actually how I came to know of Elon House of Wellness. My girlfriend made me their banana bread and it is amazing. I use their body oil and it really feels like a mini retreat in a bottle. What I love most about Elan House of Wellness is their contemporary interpretation of ancient Chinese traditions, which believes that when you support the well-being of the mother, you in turn support the entire family. Do yourself a favour and prioritise your own self-care by shopping their range of family and pregnancy-friendly products. Listeners of Witching Hour will receive 10% off using code postpartumready at elan.house. This offer has no expiration date but excludes 28-day postpartum packages and gift certificates. I can see you've got no notes in this Britney section and I'm excited because I think you're just flying by the seat of your pants. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's really fresh in my mind. Sorry, I hate to admit this, but for those of you who know me, this was this would be no surprise to you. I started listening to the audiobook yesterday. I put it on one point seven speed because I, I can't will believe say, you do that. That gives me such anxiety speeding it up. I was trying to listen to it at your speed and I couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. I was pottering around, you know. You were pottering around at one point seven speed. Like if I, I watched was. you, you would have been like <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I devoured it in like more than half the time, clearly. Yeah. And it was so freaking good. Michelle Williams as a narrator blew my mind. It's so cool that she's the narrator. I have to quickly jump in because this morning when I bought the audiobook, I bought it in fucking German first. What is wrong? <laughs> Talk about mummy brain. The grey matter has not grown in that way. Oh, so good. All right. So there's no spoilers, to be honest. And the reason I say there's no spoilers is because Britney's life has really been on show for a long time. If you haven't listened to the audiobook, then you probably would have seen the documentaries. I have no doubt you've seen her Instagram account, which has been fascinating by all respects to watch. And yeah, one of the things I found so fascinating and probably because time just goes so quick. And you know what it's like, you, you look back at a Britney Spears song and you kind of envision yourself when you're seven or something, but yeah, I'm like, exactly. surely that wasn't like 20 years ago. So she was saying she was in the conservatorship for more than 13 years. It's a bloody long time. So that's, she's 41. That's about a third of her life. She was in a conservatorship. Oh, that's crazy when you say it like that. Scary. A long time. And when her dad took power, one of the things that stuck with me, that she said was that he said to her, like, I'm in control now. You do what I say. I just didn't realize the extent of it. So her diet, her spending allowance. And originally I had read this years ago that she had like a spending allowance of like $2,000 a week. And to be real, like back in the day, I was like, come on, calm down. Like it's a pretty big budget. It's like eight grand a month to spend. Mm. But when you put it in perspective, like when she says things like, you know, I was making hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay for everybody's lifestyle. And then I'm sitting there asking for a pair of shoes and they're like, no, you can't have that. I'm like, oh, that would just make me feel sick. And it's not like they're teaching her a lesson of like, oh, we're really wealthy and we've made a lot of money, but let's not let our kids experience that wealth too young. You know what I mean? It's not like the dad made that money and he was trying to teach his kids how to be humble. Like she made that money. She worked for that money. And he was trying to reap the benefits. And rightly, as she said, so if she was in such a bad state of mind and so cuckoo, then why was she being pressured and why was she allowed to go on tour yeah. and make more money and sign more deals that she ever yeah. had before? It's something to really consider. I think as well at the time that we've grown up with it and becoming like an adult and becoming a mother and all of those things, it makes me question the way that women have been portrayed in the media oh, all yeah. these years so much. And the way even that I've judged women in the media in the past, especially growing up as a teenager in an early 20-something, it's just, it actually terrifies me the way the narrative has been controlled around her story. How is the bit about her being portrayed as a virgin when she was like, I had sex when I was 14? Yeah, As in, it wasn't even a narrative that she had yes. actively that she'd portrayed. Yeah. yeah. Imagine having so little control over your life and being so in the spotlight at the same time. The whole JT conversation was wild reading it back he seemed like such a douchebag I have mm. to be honest and he was like if that he seemed now, such a sweetheart back then wasn't he like we all loved JT and thought he was this lovely soft guy and he just wasn't yeah. well I'm not sure that it, 
he wasn't. It's more so that he, as she said, ran with his own narrative mm. and he kind of put out a story first and that's mm. what the world took on. So it mm. provided her with no opportunity really to give her side because once his was out there, she was like, well, that's it. Something that I found really interesting, and this was the part that I actually wrote some notes on, was how she said she had such a hard time being as carefree as JT, which again just goes to show how a female is treated in the industry versus a male. She would get asked different questions from TV show hosts. MTV made her watch Strangers in Times Square, watch her performances and give their opinions about it with the cameras rolling to try and get it's her so weird. And from there, that seems to be where the criticism really started to build because she started to get famous, was becoming one of the best-selling female artists in the world. She would start to notice older men more and more at her concerts and they'd be like leering at her. She was actually scared sometimes to go on stage. This is my favourite bit of the whole thing. She couldn't be seen as sexy and capable or hot and talented. She had to be one or the other. People couldn't take her seriously. It was interesting. As I was listening to this chapter, I was thinking about Dolly Parton. And their sort of likeness. They were both these soft personalities in the industry. They weren't Madonna's or your Spice Girl, girl power vibe where they were really like girls rule, we're empowered type thing. They were a bit more subtle in their influence and they didn't get involved, I don't think, in any sort of political conversation or any gender conversation. But she then quotes Dolly Parton. So I think she must have obviously admired her too and their likeness really stood out to me. She said that Dolly Parton said that people called her a dumb blonde, but she knew that that wasn't true because she wasn't dumb and she wasn't blonde. She had black hair. It's so funny. And I thought that was such a great quote. It's so good. Um, The other thing that fascinated me about this was when JT came out to the media and openly said that they'd had sex after this whole virgin deception was out there of her. And her reaction to that was, oh, thank God. Yeah. She's like, I wasn't even mad because it wasn't even a narrative that I'd spun about myself. And she felt this, not relief, I wouldn't, like, I probably wouldn't frame it like that, but she felt this, like, weight off her shoulders that somebody had just said it so that she could kind of scrap that and move on. Doesn't that say so much about how controlled her life was too by the men around her? Because, like, her dad was obviously controlling so much of the narrative and the media and controlling her life indoors as well, like, privately away from the cameras. And it's almost like it taught her that, men could speak up for her, but she couldn't really speak up for herself at that time. Like it was always someone else. The amount of therapy that she went through, like how many times can you go through therapy when you you don't feel like you've got the problem? Like it felt like every turn, every time she disagreed with something or asked for something, her dad essentially put her in rehab and she was like probably just so compliant by this stage. She was probably thinking to herself, far out, what can I say just to appease you to get out of here? And I wonder if she did think, I mean, you might be able to answer this because I haven't listened to the whole book yet, but do you then think uh, maybe I am mad and the people around me have created this circus, but maybe I actually am mad and I don't realise? hate to say it because I love Britney Spears, as in loved her music. I was such a fangirl back in the day. Her Instagram is super questionable. Like it does make you question her health and like, is she okay still? Like after Mm. the end of her conservatorship. And I think part of that is because it's such a long-term sustained beating down mentally. Exactly. She's been beaten down. Yeah. The way that you perceive yourself is so low. Yeah. And And what a perfect narrative for the dad to have out there that she seems a little bit unhinged or whatever you want to say about her on social media. Because it came from him. You know what I mean? Like this all stemmed from him, but he can be like, oh, see, she's not right. She can't control her life and her finances because this is the way she acts. Do you know what else stood out to me? The way her and her mum used to drink together. So both of her parents had an alcohol problem, but she said that her dads would make him somber after he drank. Her and her mum would bond over getting drunk together and hanging out. She would drive Jamie Lynn in the car with her mum in the passenger seat. Jamie was a baby, I believe, and she would be the one driving and there was like a car crash. And so a lot of people have correlated that with like later in life when she's had her kids in sort of unsafe positions in their car. It's like, you wonder where this shit comes from. Poor Britney's just been treated as some sort of loose cannon. Look at Ugh. the way she's been looked after or not looked after. It's yeah. just such a scary representation of what so many young stars and particularly young women go through. Yeah. It'll be an interesting one to see where Brit ends up, to be honest. Mm. I'm not sure if if that was me and as you said like a quarter of your life is that what you said yeah about a third of her life must have been conservatorship 
if that's the amount of time that you were kind of under this, I don't want to say brainwashing, but. Oh, it's sort of, I mean, it was, it was pretty extreme. She couldn't even shut the door at home as an adult, like getting dressed or as a teenager getting dressed. She couldn't have the door shut. Yeah, yeah, and how long would it take you to rebuild yourself from that? Mm, yeah. As in there'd be so many I mean, many childhood stories. trauma. We know what that does to a person. Oh, absolutely. But there's so many yeah. stories too that I think were told to her that weren't true, that she now believes and then can't figure out what was reality yeah. and what was false. You forget as well, like I'm 31 now and I reckon I've only just crossed the threshold of being like a less impressionable young person and a bit mm. more, I guess, able to have my own agency. She was 16 when she really became famous. Yeah. You are so impressionable and you've yeah. got these control, this controlling dad. It terrifies me. The way that I've, even though I loved Britney, the way that I've probably laughed at Britney the last 10 years and, well, the last few years we've obviously been learning more and more and more. But I'm repulsed by the way I would have positioned her like 10 years ago. Yeah, but it's because you didn't have the background from her perspective of it. The only things that we had to grasp or to grab onto was what her own family were using and abusing her exactly put out to media, which is so yuck. Like it just gives me the ick. Yeah. Do you know what else that this all reminds me of is we can say we love Britney's music and we can say she's an amazing dancer and all of that. But people like Britney do not get properly respected for their talent because they're just used as some sort of symbol of sex. They just get used as some sort of dumb pin-up girl who happens to have a good voice when really Britney is so successful and you cannot be that successful without being smart. And she's just been treated as this dumb teenage girl who happened to have a good voice, a good face and a hot body and be great at dancing. If you've got the time listen to it on audiobooks because Michelle Williams is incredible. Like I actually never really had heard her voice before that. Like obviously in movies, but like it's so soothing. But to listen is different. Yeah. And if you don't have the time, like I started at 1.5 speed. I'm not going to lie. I started there. And then you worked up. She's quite slow. And then I worked up to 1.7 and it was smart. I literally picked you like a sim. I picked you like a sim and you're body is on 1.7 speed you're listening to this chaotic 1.7 speed and you're just moving around the house listening it was really good I actually even I was so desperate to consume it that I was like what can I do with a kid so that I can continue listening to this so for tips for parents to listen to this five hour audiobook number one the park put your headphones in number two quiet time movie on if you have somewhat toddlers number three nap time if yeah. you need that additional time, How you can make that? it. It's like having a friend in your ear on a day where you can't see friends. Like, you know, if your kids are sick and you're stuck indoors, love chucking something. And in the chapters ears. are really short, so they're just easy to get through. Easy. This is a question without notice, so take your time. Mm. What has this book taught you about the way women are portrayed in the media? After listening to it, it made me realise how much times have changed, but how much there's still a long way to go. And I think this essence of beauty is really ingrained in women from such a young age. And it's so sad because when we focus on aspects like that, we miss everything else. Yeah. And like this Brittany is a multi-dimensional person that we've just thought of as this hot piece, basically. Yeah. And it also makes me realize that the media has such a long way to go and such a stake in how women are presented globally. It's amazing. It's also made me think a lot about how I, as a feminist woman, take in information and not to trust things at face value because I, as a young woman, would have definitely criticised and laughed at some of Britney's perceived unhinged moments in history. And it's like what's actually happening behind closed doors there. Also, it just makes you feel so sad. Like I read it and I felt so much empathy for her. At the end, she kind of says, you know, I forgive everybody around me. Like she's so happy that she doesn't have her dad in her life anymore. She feels really free, but also the forgiveness she gave her sister and her mum. And genuinely, I think she's trying to make peace with that. But I'm like, bloody hell, you're a much bigger person than I would be. Because if my family tried to capitalise on me without my consent at a time when I was at my very lowest, Mm. I'm not sure that I would be as forgiving. My overwhelming feeling around all of this has been sadness and I bloody hope that she can find happiness and freedom in her life going forward. 
I also hope that all the proceeds of sale for this book go directly to her and are spread or shared with anybody else. I feel this is probably the first time, career to date, that she's actually going to be able to pocket something that she's worked so hard for. How funny. And out of all the things that she's going to pocket, it's the proceeds of a book. So there's an article on The Guardian that I think captures this really well. It says, once she was placed under the conservatorship that would rule her life for 13 years, she became trapped further. If I became flustered, it was taken as evidence that I wasn't improving, she writes. If I got upset and asserted myself, I was out of control and crazy. Talk about spinning a narrative about a hysterical woman. And she was made hysterical by the people that were meant to protect her and look after her. And another thing that stuck out to me is we've all seen those like nude photos of her on the beach on Instagram and thought, what's going on here? But as she rightly points out, I am posting nude photos. I am posting shit that I like. I'm posting weird stuff because I haven't been able to do it. And it's a big like, fuck you. And it actually made me step back and think to myself, this isn't crazy behavior. There's a reason she's doing it. And I can appreciate that. I'm going to end this with the last sentence of this article in The Guardian. And it says, may her truth pose a legitimate threat to the system that exploited her. So, Loz, this week in community, we actually had a beloved listener write in with a question. So similar to that Substack piece that I wrote the other week about sharing the mental load when you're on maternity leave, this person said, hey, can you answer one of my questions? And I said, I probably can't, but my friend Loz might be able to. So I'm going to ask it. That makes me nervous. No pressure. So the question is, my situation is we have a 14-month-old and I returned to work when she was 12 months into a new job. The mat leave policy is 12 months service to be eligible. So I have served two months of that. So obviously we know a pregnancy goes for about nine months. That gets us to 11 months, cuts her short. Found out on the weekend that I'm pregnant, which I can't begin to tell you how much of a shock it is considering it took two years of infertility, miscarriage, failed embryo transfers and money to conceive my daughter. This is completely unplanned. So as you can imagine, my mind is spinning as an A-type life planner. Oh, that must have been such a surprise for her. Obviously, we are fully cognizant that pregnancies can be difficult to keep, but I have already started to panic about finances and not being eligible for mat leave. Someone I know in HR thinks that it would be crazy for them given their diversity and inclusion push and the type of industry with a female CEO and president to not give paid leave, at least on pro rata. So my question to you two is, what advice can you give about speaking to my manager and people and culture team about this and how can I advocate to get paid leave because my skill set is incredibly unique and I'm worth it in brackets, lol. I love that she ended with that bit. I hate that she says lol. I know. She should I know. Should we're, so, about it. we're so self-deprecating we can't even yeah. bloody value ourselves. Laws, thoughts, feelings, concerns, silver linings, perhaps. Okay. Do you want me to hamburger it? Like a positive, negative, positive? I think so. Let's do it. Okay. Positive. Congratulations. Amazing. Like what well, incredible news. Something to be excited about. Obviously, as you've said, you are capable. You are at the top of your game. You're an amazing professional. All of those things are going to work to your advantage. And the fact that you've written it, I think, is an indication that you're confident. Um, And also you got that job in the first place, I might just add there. Like you were hired for that role because you're good at what you do. Yeah. The other positive thing is this isn't the first time this has happened. HR, I've seen everything. Like they, I know so many friends of mine and so many colleagues who this exact same thing has happened to So I can give you some real life experience of their experiences, um, but also suggestions for ways that you could potentially reach that mat leave or have the conversation. The reality would be for your company, if they're really stringent on that 12 month rule and they haven't had exceptions in the past, which is a good question to ask, but if they haven't had any exceptions in the past, they're probably likely to be really stringent on that because once you open the floodgates to one, you essentially open the floodgates to all. However, how would I approach it? I would, number one, I would try and work as close to my due date as possible. During that time, I would see how much sick leave and annual leave I'd accrued and 
as in I would calculate it. So let's just say you didn't take any sick leave or annual leave. So you've got what? You'd be close to four weeks of annual leave. Yeah. If you're doing a holiday. Three weeks. Yeah. Maybe 12 days of sick leave or something like that. So you got a total of five weeks that you can push on the other end. So I'd have the conversation after you've finished your probation period. I think that's really important. I feel awful saying that, but the thing with a probation period is that if you've got a probation period, employers don't have to give a reason why they let you go. So I just wouldn't even want to risk any bias. So I would wait. So I'd have the conversation with your manager first and I would just be really honest when you're at that time when your probation period has passed or if you can't stretch it out that long, I feel like have it at a time when you're closer to the end of your probation and you're comfortable or if you're already showing. I was just thinking second pregnancy could be showing earlier. How do you navigate yeah. that? I mean, no one's going to ask you. And if they do, I would be like, that's rude. Yeah. Uh, I have just gained a few kilos. Stay away it's from It's none me. of your business. I can't yeah. imagine any workplace that would actually ask. They might gossip yeah, about it, but no not. one's going to say anything. And if they do, you can shut it down so quickly. I mean, they'll feel more uncomfortable even asking suggesting then you would even answer it to be real. And you um, always feel bigger and look bigger to yourself than anyone else thinks you look. Yeah. I mean, that is, it's something to consider though. Have the conversation with your manager. I would go in confidence. So what is the value that you bring? Where are the areas that you feel like you'll excel? I'd give the news. I don't think you have to pussyfoot around it. Don't um, apologize. Don't apologize. Just be like, I'm pregnant. I realize that I may not make maternity leave. This is the value that I can add to the organization within that time. Obviously, my mind is so focused on this role. I know that I can add ABC in XYZ areas. A couple of things that are concerning for me. Given my existing situation, I am worried that I may not make parental leave timeframes of 12 months. And then instead of you like persuading, I would put the question on them to answer first. So you wouldn't go with the framework because I was almost thinking, I know in the past when I've heard of successful HR sort of negotiations, the people have gone in with a plan of like, this is how I could bridge the gap to get to 12 months. I would wait to see what their response is because sometimes I think you you create all this stress for yourself and you do all this pre-planning and then HR come back and be like, oh, look, you're only a couple of weeks shorts in this situation. We're happy to breach the gap. And then you don't even Which a lot of big organisations would be like that. Like I know there'd be a lot of more progressive, bigger companies that potentially would be that way. Some would, some wouldn't. And then I think the other option is if they come back and say, look, it's a 12-month policy you're not here for 12 months, we can't do that. I would say, okay, what about if during that time I didn't take annual leave and sick leave and I added five weeks to the ends, which should just push her over if she's really close, would that be a consideration? Oh, God, I would have needed a few sick leave days this pregnancy if I went back to a workplace, which makes it hard. But It depends. Or like the yeah. third reality is that she may not be entitled to mat leave and I would be having the discussion with her partner as to like, what is that going to look like financially? Will it mean that maybe she has to return to work sooner than what she had anticipated? Could they start to look at ways that they could reduce spend? How can they save? Like that's a much bigger conversation. You'll have to have a look at your own finances. It's a really tricky one, but it happens so often. The pro, I mean, the pro rider question is an excellent idea from her HR friend. So what would that mean? It would mean that let's just say uh, their policy was... 16 weeks paid parental leave for 12 months of service. So I'd be like, okay, 16 weeks, how much is accrued per month towards that 12 months? I'm working 11 months. How much is accrued towards the 11 month type thing? Yeah. So that would, let's say for argument's sake, that would give you about 14 weeks of leave. And then you're taking the government one on top of that. And then maybe you're going back to work just that little bit earlier. I honestly believe though the best thing that you can do for yourself is to go in there with like a mentality of like this is what the situation is this is the value that I bring this is the outcome I would like so many times women go into a conversation like that so anxious and nervous which is completely normal to feel it everyone is going to feel like that but then it's like they're like oh could you please like I would love it if you could I mean the situation you're pregnant so is half of Australia the situation isn't unique. HR would have been through it before. I have no doubt you're not the first and you won't be the last. Don't be apologetic in what you're asking for because if you don't advocate for yourself, who's going to? So for me personally, 
I know that I wouldn't have to share that fertility was a struggle the first time, but I think if this was me, it would ease my mind to explain that to them. Where do you sit on that? I think I'd be like, look, I didn't want to necessarily, I didn't expect to fall pregnant like this because of X, Y, and Z. I know I don't need to give them that, but that's just would give me peace of mind. Where do you sit on that? You've got to do what's right for you, obviously. And it depends on the relationship that you have with your manager. Obviously, like if you've got a really close relationship, it could be worthwhile sharing. But what inf- whatever information you tell about how you're conceived or what your frame of mind is, it's not necessarily going to impact the end result. So the end result will be based, in my experience, on facts. So you're pregnant, you will have worked X amount of time. The maternity leave policy is X. What are your options? Is it pro rata? Can you use your entitlements to tie you over to get to that 12-month period? What can you do to feel financially supported as an individual? What can the organization do to make you feel financially supported while you're on maternity leave? And that's a question that I think you need to pose. And what about holding your job? So a part of that 12 months of service is then that they're entitled to hold your job for, I think, an initial 12 months and then the option of the next 12 months, I think, is the normal state law. So what happens with that conversation and how that comes into it? From the experience of girlfriends, the key thing that I've seen happen is that they've asked exactly the same question as you and HR has come back and said, look, the policy is the policy. We cannot pay your mat leave. However, normally we would require you to work here for 12 continuous months in order to keep your job. We're happy to be leaning on that. We're happy to still keep your job so that if you decide to take 12 months off, your role will still be here for you. I know that might feel like a kick in the guts, but the good thing about that is perhaps you're full-time or maybe you're part-time now. You may want to further reduce your days or do more of a slow transition to work. It is much easier to have that as an option with an existing workplace than it is to have to find a new job in a part-time capacity. So I would keep that in the back of your mind or may not be lost. Financially, it will be difficult. If they don't approve of it. If they don't approve of it, yeah. Is there anything else that you do to make your case for the pro rata rate? For example, I'm thinking maybe she could find some articles about people that have successfully done that and how it's looked. I'd be more interested to hear of situations that may have been similar within the existing workplace, which is why it's so good to speak to your manager. Like I would say to your manager, surely this is not the first time this has happened. Has anybody else had an experience like this within the organisation and what was the outcome? So we're waiting potentially for that probation period to be over, given that this person has only been there for two months. We're trying to draw it out until the first trimester is over potentially, but it's totally up to her and what she's comfortable with. We're looking at perhaps doing some research in the background, but not necessarily putting it forth. Lay out the facts for them, see what their initial response is, and then potentially have some options and some well thought out research and suggestions ready to go for if they don't come back with what you're happy with. Yeah. I also don't think it's a bad idea to push back. So just because HR or your manager say, no, it's not possible, there's no reason why you can't be like, would you consider something like this? Or is there a reason we couldn't do something like this? Yeah, they're not going to come up with the options that for you most of the time. So come up with them yourself and then at least... No. They're on the table and they can consider them. Yeah, but give them the grace first to come back to you with a solution. I think sometimes people can come in with like a scenario play on their head, like, oh, they're not going to say this or they're not going to say that or this is how the conversation is going to go. And then you work yourself into such a state of stress and then you get in there and they're like, we've had a time, we had time to look at it. You know, you're quite senior. It's not something that we do every day. But in this particular case, we're happy to honour that. And then Mm. you've saved yourself all the worry of like playing it over in your mind about like far out, what am I going to do? Also, I'm going to go back to your tip from last week, which is keep your brag book handy and anything that you do between now and then that is a win, any tangible success, anything good that any of your colleagues say about you, write it down. If not to be shared, then just to remind yourself of your worth in that organization. One other thing I am going to put in there, and most people who are pregnant may not do this, but I would encourage you to look at it. Sometimes what happens is if you're new to an organization, it's all bright lights and it's lovely and you're really enjoying it. And then a situation like this comes up 
and the response to it is so against your morals or values or it just really gives you a bad taste. Gives you the like workplace ick. Yep, gives you the ick. I would also encourage you to potentially reevaluate that organisation. There are so many organisations now, I could reel off five off the top of my head that don't have a minimum period for maternity yeah, leave. that employ really good candidates that are already pregnant. Yeah, there'd be a lot of recruitment agencies that would work with those companies too. So if you're stressed about it, if there's not a role, I would reach out to a recruiter and say, look, this is my position. I'm looking for companies that have um, no minimum service period. I'm extremely skilled in ABCD. Don't forget, I know that at the moment there is a job shortage. However, after after looking at candidate pools, there's also a talent shortage. Good people are really freaking hard to find. If you're good, you can find a job. You just gave me a lot of advice, but give me another tip. My tip is rethink the find your passion advice. Everyone says it, like, what are you passionate about? You know, I'm in that kind of stage at the moment where I'm looking for roles or just reconsidering. And every time I say to someone, they're like, what are you passionate about? And it really just pisses me off, to be honest. Like, you know what I'm passionate about? Shopping. I love shopping. Yeah. Can someone pay me to shop? Yeah, far out. Like, I've got a collection of 15 white shirts. I love a white shirt. I'm passionate about a nice structured white shirt. Like, what a ridiculous question. Mm. It made me think of this. Finding a job that you're passionate about is the goal probably for all of us, right? I would love to find something that I'm passionate about. However, sometimes you do need to start at the bottom. And believe me, entry-level positions can be filled with some pretty mind-numbing tasks that no one wants to do. But it allows you to develop your skills until you're ready to take on more exciting stuff. And it's what you do when times are tough or things aren't fun that I found actually builds your character and work ethic. So don't always let passion be your guide for what you do. It can feel really overwhelming when people are like, what are you passionate about? Like find your purpose, find your passionate. Sometimes, like this is what I'll say, find something that you're good at yeah, and then turn it into a passion. So if you're like me, you're figure like, out oh, that it's not your passion. Then Yeah, exactly. If you. Exactly. If you're like, I'm not sure what my next career move is next, like you place all these, oh, what are your passion? What's your purpose? I think sometimes just take a step back and be like, what am I good at? Mm. Am I good at talking to other people? Am I good at influencing others? Am I really creative? Am I good at writing? Like write a list of what you're good at and start there. And I think sometimes what you'll find is once you hone in on what you're good at and you find a really nice organization that allows you to express that, you'll naturally forward to something that you're passionate about. Okay, so my tip this week, perfectly in line with me finding my passion, and that's to do with books and shows. So I don't know if you have read Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Gammas. I think it was released last year. I absolutely I loved it. I feel like it. I've it read it. the year before. Yeah, and it's about a chemist who works as a tech lab in the 50s, a female chemist, and she's basically – brushed to the side for any projects, any research, any funding. She's treated as like the girl in the office that gets a cup of joe for the male scientists that suck. Patriarchy 50s. Ew, ew, ew. Anyway, it's a brilliant <laughs> bloody book. You get chapters written in the dog's mind, 6.30, love him, because that's what time he wakes up. Mm -hmm. I think the main character has mild autism. Yeah, I think and she does. And it no, makes her a really right. kooky and particular person. It gives her these really interesting edges. It's so good. And then she um, starts a cooking show, which is really interesting because she's this feminist chemist, but she brings like a real feminist angle to a cooking show in the 50s and she gets a huge audience. I loved the story. I've just started watching the show on Apple TV. Another I subscription am. that I probably don't need. I know. Oh, yeah. Sometimes I just, I just make get them all it for like one. a week it's so and annoying. then I delete it again. <laughs> um, I know it's really annoying, but this show is really, it's been made really well. I'm addicted. Made the all mistake right, of to watch it with Hades, who you know, falls asleep at the drop of a hat. I yep. don't know why I didn't just keep this as my nice little thing to myself so I can watch yep. it whenever I want at night because now we're on the train together and I'm, going to be bloody oh, making that's so five stop-offs on each episode along the way because oh, he falls asleep. Larry. He's really enjoying it though. So hopefully that means he stays awake. But lessons in chemistry, if you like reading or if you like audio booking, go for that first and then watch the show. It is really good. That wraps things up for today, Loz. It's a little bit sad not being in the same room together, but it's great to see your face. 
It has been a bit sad, but um, I'm always open to trying new things as the old soul that I am. If Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you have loved today's episode, please leave us a five-star review or any review is nice. Any positive review is nice. And follow us on regularnot.pod on Instagram. See you next week. Bye.